Good evening, everyone. Uh, it's good to see everybody back again for another uh, real-life big question session. Um, we're going to answer another question tonight, but before we do, I wanted to go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to gather tonight to worship your name through song, through your word, through fellowship. You deserve all honor and glory and praise. And the fact that you would receive praise from sinners like us amazes me. It amazes all of us. But you are gracious and you're loving and you're merciful and we thank you for that. Father, we pray tonight that you would meet with us, that you would help blind eyes to see your truth, that you would help deaf ears to hear their need for a savior, and you would take wicked, broken, evil hearts and make them new. We give you all the glory and the honor and the praise. We pray that everything that is said is for your glory and nothing is said for my shame. We thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So far in our sessions this week, we have talked about things like, is eternity in hell fair? Can I be assured of my salvation? What is love? Tomorrow we'll talk about whether or not Christians are hypocrites. But tonight, our question is, I'm a good person. Surely I'm fine, right? We wanna look at what it means to be a good person and how being a good person affects your eternity. Because the truth is, whether you agree with me or not, everyone's gonna spend somewhere in eternity. If you and I were to go out and ask 50 people in the city what it means to be a good person, we would get 50 different answers. Many would say that being a good person depends on your religious beliefs or your ethnic background or your family dynamics or the experiences that you had growing up. But no matter who the person is or what their past or their upbringing, everyone has a picture of what a good person is. Some people think that being a good person means doing good things for others, accepting and loving yourself as you are. Others think that being a good person means being empathetic and honest or humble or fair or responsible, not being judgmental. Still others mean, think that being a good person means having self-respect and respect for others, living your life with purpose. If we were to ask these same people what it means to be a bad person, you and I would hear some of the most horrific things that you could possibly think of. We would hear about Hitler and the Holocaust, or the attacks on 9-11, some of the most extreme evidences of how wicked and evil man can be. But with both of these in mind, everyone takes what they think a good person is and what they think a bad person is, and they make a scale with good on one side, and bad on the other. This scale then becomes their standard for how they judge every single person that they come in contact with. They use it to judge the actions, motives, and attitudes of everyone. As a matter of fact, they'll even put themselves on this scale. Now, of course, we always put ourselves closer to the good side than the bad side, and we never put ourselves all the way at the end on the good side, because who wants to be that facetious, right? But before we get into tonight's question, I want to ask a couple things that I want you to keep in the forefront of your mind. What do you think makes a person good? What is your scale of good and bad? 
Are you a good person? If so, why? What makes you a good person? See, we all have our own scale of good and bad. We all have our idea of what a good person is, but there's one other scale that you and I need to take into account. And to do that, we're gonna look at scripture. Now, the basis of our answering the question tonight is gonna be Mark 10, verses 17 through 22, and then we'll add other scriptural passages as we go. So, Mark 10, verses 17 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. It says, as he was setting out on a journey, a man came up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all of these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. So here we see Jesus is actually on his way to Jerusalem and a young man comes running up to him and asks him a very important question. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is one of the most important questions that you and I can possibly ask. Where we spend eternity matters. Have you ever thought about where you'll spend eternity? It's important. And the man wants to know, and so he says, what shall I do? This young man wants to know all of the things that he must do to inherit eternal life. All known religions, except Christianity, offer each of us a long list of boxes to check of things that we can do in order to gain eternal life. If you're a Muslim, you, your good deeds need to outweigh your bad deeds. If you're a Buddhist, you need to act and speak and live in the right manner so you can rejoin the divine. If you're a Hindu, you need to get rid of all of your bad karma over a series of lives so that you can gain enlightenment. If you're a Mormon, you need to become a member of the LDS Church. You need to participate in temple rituals and obey teachings outside of scripture. And if you're a Jew, you need to keep the law, observe the holy days, and do good works called mitzvahs. But Jesus responds to this question this man has with a question of his own. He said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This also is an extremely important question for us to look at. He says, why do you call me good? To the young man and to many today, Jesus is just a good teacher. He's a wise man who said many things that can help us live a better life. But Jesus wants to know if the young man actually understands who he's talking to. Why is Jesus good? He's using a play on words here. The young man called him good teacher out of respect, but Jesus wants him to see that if Jesus is truly good, then he's God, because only God is good. And he also wants to correct the man's understanding of what it means to be good. 
So he says, God is the only one that's good. The word good here, generally in Greek, means good in quality and beneficial to others. It's the one whose goodness or works of goodness are transferred to others. But in the New Testament, the word good actually talks about being spiritually and morally perfect. Jesus isn't saying that he's not good, as some would say. This isn't an admission of sin on Jesus' part. Instead, he's saying, if I'm good and only God is good, then Jesus is God, and therefore, he is good. What Jesus is doing here is he's trying to get the man to take his eyes off of himself and put them on God where they belong. But immediately, we have a conflict. We consider ourselves good. Jesus says only God is good. Either we misunderstand goodness or Jesus misunderstands goodness. And I'll give you one guess who's misunderstanding goodness. But the idea that man is not good is also found other places in scripture. Romans 3, 9 through 18 says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This may sound a little harsh, but this is exactly what we see in our world today. And while we may not see ourselves this way, because remember, we're closer to the good side of the scale, this is exactly what scripture reveals us to be. Remember, we're talking about spiritual and moral perfection. Now, there was a time when man was perfect. Adam and Eve lived in communion with God, and there was no sin. Unfortunately, that didn't last. In Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Adam and Eve had one command and they disobeyed God. They sinned against God himself, and that sin brought death into the world. Not only that, it brought both physical and spiritual corruption. Romans 5, 12 and 13 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, 
And so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Some people today believe that we're born neutral, that we're not good or bad, and that the choices we make determine whether we're good or bad. The more bad choices we make, the more evil we become. But scripture says otherwise. Scripture says that you and I are conceived in sin, that we're born sinners, that this is our default position. All of humanity are descendants of Adam and have a sinful nature. It comes naturally to us. Anyone who has children knows this. You don't have to teach your kids how to lie or steal or sin. They do it automatically. This is because of Adam and his sin. And so, Jesus starts by correcting the man's understanding of good, and now he tries to lead him to self-reflection. In verse 19, he says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. In Matthew's account, he says, Jesus says, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And the young man responds, which ones? Now, Jesus, again, is not advocating that you and I can keep the commandments to gain eternal life. What he's doing is using the law to show the man that he can't keep them. And so he takes them through some of the Ten Commandments. The first one is do not murder. This is the sixth commandment. Hopefully, everyone here and everyone watching can say with confidence that they haven't murdered anybody. Hopefully. But there's a danger here. Because you and I can think that just because I haven't murdered somebody, I'm a good person. But Jesus has something to say about this. In Matthew 5, 21 and 22, Jesus says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. The next commandment he looks at is the seventh. It's do not commit adultery. Again, hopefully, we can all say that we haven't committed adultery. We haven't actually committed the act. And so we would consider ourselves good. But again, Jesus speaks to this. In verses 27 and 28 of Matthew 5, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus goes beyond the act itself to the motives of our heart to show that we're not good. He says everyone that looks with lust commits adultery. He moves on to stealing. Do not steal. This is the eighth commandment. Theft or stealing is taking something that doesn't belong to you. It doesn't matter how small it was doesn't matter how little it costs, doesn't matter how long ago it happened, it doesn't even matter if you gave it back. If you take something that doesn't belong to you, that's stealing. He also says, do not bear false witness or do not defraud. This is the ninth commandment. To, uh, to defraud someone is to take something from them by deception. And to bear false witness is simply to tell lies. 
doesn't matter if they're little white lies or big red ones, it doesn't matter. They're all lies. And the last commandment that he uses is the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother. To honor someone is to show them respect, to revere them. This is a command from God to obey your parents, to submit to their authority. Doing so is a sign that you love them. This doesn't mean that you'll always agree with them or that there won't be issues, but it does demand that you respect them throughout. And so after going through these commands, the young man responds in verse 20 and says, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. This is the young man's response. He's saying, Jesus, I'm a good person. If he was Jewish, which we don't really know, but it's a good assumption, then he's been keeping the law of Moses since he was 13. In the parallel account in Matthew 19, he says not only that he's kept all of these things up from his youth, he asks, what am I lacking? He thought his goodness was brought about by doing good things. And externally, he had. He had a number of boxes that he could check off to show his goodness. But Jesus' purpose in showing him the commandments was to help him see that he hadn't in fact kept them because his heart was still wicked. See, the law is not meant for us to, to have a checklist of commands that we can keep for eternal life. Romans 3, 19 and 20 says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law of God is a reflection of God's holy and perfect character. It's meant not to give us an option for eternal life. It's meant to show us that we have no excuse. There's no way for us to earn our way to heaven. We can't claim our own goodness when we look at the law. It holds us accountable and it shows us what sin is. In Romans 7, 7, Paul says, I would not have known sin but by the law. And this is what Jesus is trying to do here with the young man. Unfortunately, he completely misses this. So Jesus continues to prod at his conscience. In verse 21, it says, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. The love that Jesus has for the young man comes from the understanding that this man's soul is precious. Matthew 16, 26 says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Your soul is more precious than all of the material wealth in the entire world. And so Jesus speaks all of the things that he's saying out of a love for this man and a concern for his soul. And he tells him, he gives him a command. He says, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. This command is in, for those of you Greek nerds, it's present imper imperative. That means that this is a command that Jesus expects him to follow now and forever into the future. It signifies a lifestyle of obedience, a daily walk driven by love 
for Christ. But he's not telling him to do this so that he can, uh, he can gain eternal life. He's pointing to his heart and his spiritual condition. See, only someone who's born again can actually obey the commands of Christ. And so, if he was willing to follow these commands through from now on, it would be evidence of his already belonging to Christ. It wouldn't be why he was getting saved. And if, by chance, this young man could obey Christ, he would be born again, and he would have treasure in heaven. In Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So here we see Jesus constantly pricking at his conscience, trying to show him that he's not as good as he thinks he is. And then he does something that, I mean, it kind of amazes me, really. Jesus calls this man the same way that he called his disciples. He says, come, follow me. This is the only instance in the New Testament where Jesus says, come, follow me, and someone responds negatively. Everyone else that Jesus has called this way, Peter, Andrew, James, John, they've all denied everything that they knew about their life. They dropped it all, and they went after Christ in obedience. This is what Jesus talks about in Mark 8, 34 and 35. It says, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And so this is what Jesus is doing. And after telling him to go and to sell all that he has and to give to the poor and come and follow Christ, we see the young man's response in verse 22. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Hearing the words of Christ brought grief and sadness, but not repentance. Christ was calling him to sacrifice everything that he loved, but the price was too great for the young man to pay. The man loved the world too much to give it up. Jesus speaks of the dangers of this world in Matthew 13. He talks about the parable of the four soils, and one of the soils is where the seed is sown among thorns, and as the seed sprouts, the thorns choke it out. And in explaining this part of the parable to his disciples, in verse 22 of chapter 13, he says, and the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world, and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Now, it would be really easy for us to dismiss the young ruler. He spoke with Jesus face to face, and he still walked away. But many people today, like this young man, profess that they're good people. Their scale puts them on the good side. They're not as bad as Hitler. They're not as bad as a serial killer. They're a good person. They do good things. They try really hard to be better. They feel sorry about the bad things they've done. 
But in Isaiah 64, 6, it's written, for all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Remember, I asked earlier if you're a good person, and I asked you why you're a good person. Put yourself in the place of the rich young ruler. You stand before Jesus face to face, and he walks you through the Ten Commandments. How many lies have you told in your life? One, a hundred, a thousand, too many to count? Someone who tells lies is called a liar. And Proverbs 12:22 says that lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Have you ever hated someone or called them a name in anger? According to Jesus, this is the same as murder. Calling someone a fool, according to Christ, is enough to be in danger of hell. Revelation 21.8 says, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Have you ever taken anything that didn't belong to you? Remember, we said earlier, it doesn't matter how small, it doesn't matter how long ago it was, or how little it costs, or even if you gave it back. If you've done this, you're a thief. Have you ever looked at someone with lust? According to Jesus, this is no different than adultery. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. But adultery isn't the end of it. In Ephesians 5, 5 and 6, Paul writes, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral person or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because all of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. To sum all of this up, we could turn to 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, which says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is why the talk about being a good person matters so much. You and I want to be seen as good people. We want to be righteous. We want to be kind. We want to be loving. But we've just gone through a long list of things that show what, Bi what the Bible calls sin. We may justify ourselves and say we're not that bad, but the truth is plainly before us. We may want to talk about how we haven't committed this sin or that sin, but the truth is that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of it all. If you break one commandment just one time, you're just as guilty as if you broke them all. And this isn't because of the, just because of the sin we commit. It's because of who we sin against. If I lie to my daughter, that's bad. I should ask for forgiveness. It can hurt our relationship, but as bad as this sounds, that's the extent of the punishment. 
If I lie to the government, that's called treason. At best, I'm getting five years in prison and a $10,000 fine, and at worst, they're gonna put me to death. This is a greater punishment because it's a greater sin, although my daughter may disagree with that. If I lie to God, I'm lying to the eternal, perfect, holy creator of the universe. Because of this, as we've already seen, the only punishment that makes sense is for him to send me to hell for all eternity. But the truth is, all of my sin, all of your sin, is ultimately against God. If I lie to my daughter, I'm sinning against God. If I lie to the government, I'm sinning against God. You and I break God's commandments every day, and sadly, many times we do it without thinking. We do it when nobody sees, and all of these things show that we're not good people. God will judge us for breaking his commandments, and he will find us guilty. We can't deny this. We all know that sin is wrong because God gave us a conscience. The word conscience means with knowledge. When we sin, we do it knowing that it's wrong. So, if you were to die tonight, and God were to judge you for your sins, he would find you guilty, and he would send you to hell for all eternity. My sincere hope is that this concerns you, because it concerns me. But if this is the only thing I have to tell you tonight about God judging us for our sins and sending us to hell, it would be awful, and you wouldn't be fine. God's wrath would be poured out on you forever with no relief. Fortunately, it's not all I have to tell you. Earlier, we used the law to reveal the truth of sin and how bad it is, but the law has another function. In Galatians 3.24, Paul writes, therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. God is a holy, just, and righteous God. He deserves, no, he commands worship from his creation, and he will punish sin but he's also a loving, merciful, and forgiving God. He made a way for rebel sinners like you and I to be spared his wrath. 2,000 years ago, God sent his only son to earth, born of a virgin. This son was named Jesus, and that's important. In Matthew 1.21, it says, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to God the Father, the life that we were supposed to live, but couldn't. At age 30, he began a public ministry, preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was eventually betrayed by a friend, whipped to the point that he was unrecognizable, and nailed to a wooden cross. And the saddest part of all of this is that he hung there as an innocent man, he hung in your place. He hung there in my place. Not only did Christ bear the weight of his broken and battered body, he bore the weight of our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
God poured out all of the wrath for your sin and my sin on his precious son, and Christ died for it. Romans 5.8, for while we were still helpless, but at the right time, God, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the good news of the gospel. You don't have to bear the punishment for your sins. I'll give you an example. Say you're in a courtroom. You're guilty of robbing a bank and there are 10 pieces of evidence, clear evidence that you're guilty. There's no question. The judge is about to sentence you to $25,000 bond and 10 years in prison. And as he's about to drop the hammer, someone bursts into the courtroom, someone you don't even know, and pays your fine. The judge says, well, your fine is paid. You're free to go. How would you feel towards someone who did that for you? Hopefully, you would be grateful. This is what Christ did when he hung on the cross. His death on the cross was the payment for our sins. Your debt is paid, you can go free. Not only that, Christ rose from the grave three days later, conquering death and proving not only that he was the savior, but the Lord, he was the Messiah. God's promise was fulfilled. This is truly good news, but there are a few words of warning. This does not apply to everyone. In Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus commands that we enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. For Jesus' death to be credited to your account, there are two things that you must do. First, you must repent. This means to turn from your sins, to stop doing what you know is wrong, to flee immorality. But don't just turn away from your sin, turn to Christ. The second thing you must do is trust in Christ alone as your savior. This is not just a mental assent that he's the Messiah. This is truly trusting in him, like you would a parachute if you were to jump out of a plane. Flapping your arms wouldn't help you. You have to trust in the parachute. The Bible says that if you do these two things, you'll be born again. God will give you a new heart with new desires to please him and love him. You'll hate your sins and you'll strive to live in obedience to God's commands. Now there is a sense of urgency here because you and I are not promised tomorrow. Death comes for us all and we don't know when. So I would urge you, consider your sins and your standing before God. Understand that you can do nothing to save yourself. What shall I do? This was the question of the young man. The answer, nothing. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. You need Christ. Repent of your sins. Put your faith in Christ alone to save you. And I would urge, find a solid Bible-believing church. Read your Bible daily, starting with John's gospel, if nowhere else. 
You and I don't know what happened to the young man. He had an opportunity to repent and trust Christ for eternal life, and he walked away. You have that same opportunity right now. Don't walk away from Christ and the precious offer of salvation that he extends to you. Acknowledge your sin and your need for a savior. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ to be saved from God's wrath. Let's pray.